Now, we're in a series on the book of John, and, uh, and today we're going to just take a quick rabbit trail. And I know I, it's always interesting when we take a rabbit trail. I get some people that say, I love your rabbit trails. And I get some people that go, man, get back to the book, man. Get back to First John. Get back to John, not First John. John. So sorry to some, yippee to others, right? But here's, here's my thinking, because here's what we're talking about. If you remember, we're, we're at the, we're just had the Last Supper, and Jesus is, a number of things have happened. Jesus knows what's coming, right? He's just told them that Judas, you know, and he looked at Judas, you know, you're going to betray me. Judas skulks out into the night. He told Peter, you're going to deny me. He's telling them all these things because he knows the end is coming. This is not news to him. It's not a surprise to him. He's in charge of it. He's orchestrating. He's making things. And so in all of that, he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them about life after he's finally gone and how to live life after he's finally gone. And so we keep coming up to these things like we talk about this word life in the Greek. There's multiple words for life. And so it's this idea that there's this, this life full of meaning, eternal life, life full of meaning that goes into eternity. Meaning here, meaning now, and into eternity. So we're not these people that are just looking for pie in the sky by and by. We're supposed to be people who are saying, we got the life now. We're changing things now. And that's all about meaning and purpose. And the Bible talks about this a lot in so many ways to make people stop and think, why am I here? What's my purpose? Why am I breathing? Is my purpose in life just to use up oxygen, to use up things, to, to, to gather things to myself and then die? Is that it? Then there's people who will tell you that's exactly it, right? So we're going to explore that a little bit. We're going to look at a book in the Bible real quick. Years ago, we did a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to now, we're going to run through Ecclesiastes in 30 minutes at the most, right? You're like, what? Okay, so I want to talk about finding meaning in a meaningless world. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, if you want to reduce it to something very, very simple. You know, uh, because this is, the, this is the point. What's the purpose of life? When a life arrives on this planet, how do you know what it's here for? 37 years ago, Bev and I found out we were bringing a new life into this world, right? We went to Lamaze, you know, because that's how we were, and, and, and I wanted to learn to be a coach, and I wanted to learn to be a supporter during childbirth. And you guys, you guys know I don't like to toot my own horn, but some of the nurses were like, you were heroic during her childbirth. Just, just heroic during the birth of your son. <laughs> nothing, right? Isn't And But interesting to me and is that in Lamaze, somebody asked a question about pain. And the coach said, oh, oh, we don't use the P word. You know, that's like, that's like, the, that's like the curse word in Lamaze. The church has its own curse words you're not allowed to use. And other places have their own words you're not allowed to use. In Lamaze, you're not allowed to use the P word. We don't use pain. We let people know they will experience some discomfort. <laughs> right? So we're in the birthing room. And I, I had, I, honey, are you experiencing discomfort? And she called me a name. I can't repeat it here. And then, and then this little boy arrived. And it was, the closest, it was the closest thing to a miracle I've ever seen. 
And that's what makes oftentimes the pain bearable. That's what allows people to go through pain in some situations is the purpose that's on the other side of the pain. There is a purpose on the other side of the pain. And I can remember weeks later asking my wife, when you look at this little life here, the pain isn't really so bad after all, is it? And she called me a name again. (laughs) But it's a funny thing when you think about this. It's a funny thing. We all know when we were born. Everybody knows the answer to that question. But the real answer is this. The real question is this. Why were you born? Why was I born? That's the real question. That's the question we need to, uh, we need to struggle with. We need to wrestle with. We, we need to deal with. You know, they print the birth certificate. There's the name. I wish they would print there. Okay, and here's why you were born. It would make it easy for us. Here's your job for the rest of your life. Because you can set your alarm clock and it'll get you up every morning. It'll tell you what time it is to get up. But it won't tell you why you should get up. People don't know the answer to that question. And when people don't know the answer to that question, they start dying just a little bit every day. Why am I here? Now, Jesus warned us, and we're going to get to this, and this is a part of what got this, me going as we think about this, because the next passage we're going into is going to deal with the trouble in this world. We're going to talk about that. And Jesus said in John 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. There's going to be trouble. And that Greek word for trouble is this idea of two things that press tightly together until something gives. You know, it's almost like... like uh, uh, um, tectonic plates underneath the ocean and they press and they press till one gives and now you've got a tidal wave. Now you've got trouble, right? And for us, this idea of two things, this this is where pain is. And pain seems such a waste. We avoid it at all costs. We have a culture that has majored on pain avoidance. And I'm not saying I embrace it, I don't ask for it, but we make it the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person. But unfortunately, it still happens, right? How are we doing on that? Not so good. Pain still happens. And the only hope we have in pain is this, that purpose redeems pain. Purpose redeems pain. The real tragedy in this life is not when somebody goes through suffering, because everybody will. The great tragedy is when somebody goes through life and they never know why they get up in the morning. Now, the Bible is full of purpose statements. We were made for a purpose. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you come to this church any any amount of time, this is not news to you. But we have to keep telling ourselves this because we tend, as I said earlier, we tend to get just sidelined by the mediocre, sidelined by the mundane, And the Bible tells us we have a purpose. There is a point for you being here. There's a space in you. You can call it your heart, whatever you want to call it. But there's a space in you where you put the most important thing in the world to you. It's what you care about the most. I was thinking about this years ago. I thought about an illustration, and I realized that two-thirds of people here 
the illustration is not really that good for you, but you, you've probably heard about it. Years and years ago, back in the 80s, early 80s, Coca-Cola did an incredible amount of taste tests, blind taste tests. They, they changed their formula, and according to the blind taste test, everyone loved the new formula and thought the old formula wasn't that good until they put it in a can and tried to sell it. And they marketed this, the new Coke. 1985, the new Coke came out, and the old Coke was phased out. Coca-Cola sales dropped by 70% of Coke. 70%. Within three weeks, the executives realized blind taste tests are not the way to go here. Because as soon as people saw, oh, this isn't the regular Coke I've always drank, oh, it tastes terrible. And so they quickly hired consultants. And one of the consultants wrote about this. He talked to them and he said, he said, uh, what you need to think about, you've done this all wrong. What are you about? What is your core? If there's a word or two words that mean Coca-Cola company, what are they? Because you went with new Coke and that's a disaster. All right, so what's your mainspring? What's your driving force? Why do you exist as a company? And they went back to the drawing board and the executives came up with this. We are American tradition. And he worked with them. He said, so you're like a classic. You're like a classic. And they said, yes. He goes, get out your old formula and call it classic Coke. Coca-Cola sales rocketed. You can't buy new Coke anymore. They realized this is a goner. This, this, this flavor means loser. And so they went to classic Coke and they recovered and, and added their, to their market share. There's, there's people who you can just see them or companies and you know what they're about, right? For those of us that are older, there was a man named Hugh Hefner, the longtime publisher of Playboy magazine. What do you think he would say is his core? Sex. It's all about sex. There's a football coach named Bill Belichick. He's a really intense coach of the New England Patriots. My wife is from New England, so I'm treading on very thin ice right now. And here I go. He got caught cheating because he wanted to win so bad. What do you think he would say is the most important thing to him? Winning. It's all about winning, baby. Jeff Bezos or Bezos, everybody says it different. He divorced his wife not that long ago. He had to give her $37 billion in the divorce settlement. She instantly became the third richest woman in the world. He was asked by a magazine. They said to him, you had to give $37 billion to your wife. How is that? How do you do that? How do you feel about that? And he looked at him and he said, I'm the, still the richest man in the world. What do I care? If you ask Jeff Bezos, what is he about? He's about money. He's about money. That's what it's about. You can talk to musicians. What are they about? They're about their music oftentimes. That's their core. You can talk to, to writers. You can talk all kinds of people. But here's the problem. Here's the thing we have to think about. We think about this. I, I call this, this I, the idea of that you, you're, you have a box you have a box where the most important thing goes. Whatever's most important in my life, where does it go? What goes in the box? What, what's in your box? 
In the history of the human race, there was one man who said one day he would devote his life, his entire life to an experiment to figure out what ought to go in the box in order to have a life well lived. And thousands of years later, people still read this book. People still study this book. We studied this book as a church, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's found in the Old Testament and begins by saying these are the words of the teacher. Some say the preacher, but uh, Eugene Peterson, in his message version, he called him the quester because he's on a quest. That's his whole point. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is one man's quest to find meaning in life, to find a life well lived. It's a reflection. A man named Solomon. Um, Many people think he's the one that wrote it, or at least it's definitely about him to figure out what life is about. And he's in the unique position to carry out this experiment because he had wealth, he had power, he had the ability to do all these things to the extreme. Because this is one thing about the quester, he's not a dabbler, he doesn't just play around with this. The the phrase comes up in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over, I set my heart to it or I devoted myself to it. Over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, you will see those phrases. I set my heart to this. I devoted myself. I went all in on this. I'm going to find out. And so what did he say? He says, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. So what is he saying? He says, I'm going to study. I'm going to go the education route. I'm going to be the smartest man in the world. I'm going to be the wisest person in the world. And he was incredibly smart. Look at this. It says, it says in 1 Kings about Solomon, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including uh, Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than He-Man. Well, He-Man's not that strong, right? He's not that wise. Wiser than He-Man, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. His fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Okay, I don't know how wise He-Man, Calcol and Darda were, but evidently they were some of the wisest people they could think of to compare to Solomon. So he's incredibly wise. He says, I'm going the education route. I'm going the wisdom. I'm going to learn everything there is to learn. I'm going to plumb the depths. His reputation was so great The Bible tells us the queen of Sheba came to ask him hard questions in order to test him. She was so amazed by his wisdom. This is what she said. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. One of the great things about, I love about this church is I love it. And it's also, it's also difficult at times is we have a lot of people who are very intelligent in a whole lot of different ways, Right. We have, we have people who are physicists, and so every, anytime I get into physics, I'm worried. We have people who are into philosophy. Every time I talk about philosophy, I'm like, oh, you better get this right. We have people who are in, involved in all kinds of things, who know all things about economics and about, about trades and about all these. So if I start talking about what's involved in building an aircraft carrier, I realize there's a whole bunch of people here that could be, look at me and go, you are so dumb. What do you think you're saying? You have no clue what you're talking about. You know, I, it's, it's a scary thing when you have a, this, this, this kind of an audience you have people with theology degrees here. So whenever I talk about theology, I'm like, oh, oh, he started writing down. That means I did something wrong. Oh, she's writing in her notebook. Darn it, you know. I never assume it was something good. I always assume I made a mistake, right? Think about this. 
The Queen of Sheba said, how happy the people. I wish she'd say that about me. How happy the people who sit under you. They, they, your wisdom just rolls over them like the ocean, right? How thrilled your spouse must be just to get a few tidbits of wisdom. Solomon, this man, this questor, he walks down that road. And it's a strange thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. People who think they are smart can really do dumb things. And Solomon is the poster child for this on what he did to his life. He ruined it. But oftentimes, it, just, it can happen in our lives, too. A while back before the Mannings had left for Arizona, so Bill Manning was here as, one of our, as our associate pastor, um, I, had t- I was talking to my wife on the phone, and, and she said, uh, I, I, got, I got something, I gotta call, I'll call you right back. Right? I'll call you right back. And, and a couple of minutes, um, the phone, the ch- you know, nobody else was here, it was just me here at that time. The church phone rings, and so I picked it up, and I said, this is the world's greatest kisser. This is the world's greatest hugger. This is the world's greatest lover. Hello. And it was the pastor from Mitchville Baptist Church. <laughs> and he said, hi, um, I'm looking for Bob Mosley. Who is this? And I said, Bill Manning. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Bob's not here right now. I'll have him call you back. You know, you can think you're smart and you can do the stupidest thing sometimes, right? Just dumb things, no matter how smart we think we are. And he said, I'm going to walk down this road as far as a man can walk. And education is not a bad thing, but it didn't satisfy what was inside. It didn't satisfy him. It didn't tell him this is why you get up in the morning. So he tried something else. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So we have this man of fierce appetites. We know a lot about him from scriptures. And he said to himself, okay, I'm going to indulge every desire that I have and see how this works. Any food he wanted, he ate. The description in scripture of the lavishness of his parties is astounding. They will boggle your mind. If he wanted something, he bought it. He loved beauty, so he surrounded himself with parks and vineyards and gardens. He wanted a nice house. So he constructed this huge house. Scripture tells us that it took 13 years for his house to be built. Scripture also tells us that he built the temple and it took him six. It took him twice as long to build his house as it took him to build God's house. He liked music. I mean, who doesn't? We all liked music. We all like music. The Questor liked music. There was no Spotify. There's no CD. So it told us what he did. He found every instrument known to man and someone to play it. And he found the best singers to sing for him whenever he wanted them to. Right? He just had people there who were incredible. And so he would just say, hey, Beyonce, give me, I'm eating. I'd like something. BTS, you're in on this, right? Harry Styles, get up here. He just gets all these people and brings them up. Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you're on. Lizzo, join them, which I don't know why I thought of that. <laughs> That's not on my nose, but I just thought the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and Lizzo just could be great. I don't know. I don't know why I think that, all right? So what did he say? I tried cheering myself with wine. I tried embracing, embracing folly, anything. So he went to sexual pleasure. 
He devoted himself to sex. This is supposed to be the smartest guy in the world, and he had a thousand wives. Uh, it's just, that's just not a good indication right there. You got to think about it. That's true. He sums up his journey this way. I think this is a great way of it. He says, I des- denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I looked at it. I saw it. I wanted it. It's mine. Right? It's, it's, he just was driven by it. He was driven by it. Like Cookie Monster and Sesame Street. You know, cookie. He was driven by it. Although somebody told me Cookie Monster now craves veggies. It's not the same. Just not the same. I don't see people going, you know, man, right now, I just want a piece of veggies. You know, I want a piece of broccoli. No, but cookie, yes, okay. The old guy's rambling now. Okay, so he says, I see it, I want it, I get it. He indulged every appetite. He experienced every thrill. He scratched every itch. He bought every toy. He, did, he was not held back. This is the thing. He was not held back like we would be by a lack of resources. He was not held back by wondering what anyone else thought about him because he was the king. He was not held back by moral scruples. He'd given up on them. So he walked down that road. The road that is saying, I want to know what's in the box. What goes in the box? You know, and there's a lot of people who will talk about what you ought to devote your life to. The question is, the problem is, will that do it for you? Will that make it for you? Because he, obviously, it didn't. It didn't. And I know sometimes for us, it's easy to think this. Oh, there's just this one pleasure, this one thrill, this one thing. If I could just have this, I would be happy. Now, we don't say it out loud. If you're a Christian, you know that's not what you're allowed to say. But inside, you're thinking it, right? Inside, you think it. You see somebody win the lottery, and you go, man, I'd like to give that a try. I know money can't buy happiness, but it can buy cool stuff, right? And, 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 and we think that way. This is what Solomon did. But see, he was able, he didn't have to win the lottery. He was able to do it. So he tried another thing. He said, I undertook great projects, the ladder of success. And he climbed higher than anyone can climb. He became the most successful king in the history of Israel. His borders were extended far further than any time ever in the history of Israel. He single-handedly made Israel a shipping empire. He seized and nationalized two major trade routes so that he could get the taxes from them. We're told in 1 Kings that Solomon had a salary that included 25 tons of gold. That was a part of his salary every year, not to mention taxes and all this other stuff. He had power, military power, financial power, religious power, educational power. Everybody looked up to him. Everybody said King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon because of the wisdom God had put in his heart. He climbed the ladder of success. He did all these things, and what does he say? He says, I turned my head, and I saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person working excessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask why. Never bothering to ask why. He surveyed all he had done. He thought about all the knowledge he had gained, the appetites he'd gratified, the scratches he had itched, the ladders he'd climbed, the toys he had collected, and he said, this isn't it. This won't fill the box. 
And he realized for something to fit in your box, it has to pass what I would call the eternity test. The eternity test. Because he said this, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. There's an eternity test. Will this last into eternity? Or will it just go up, like he said, a wisp of smoke that just goes up? One of the things we looked at that I thought was very interesting in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, because he deals with stuff that is so down to earth for us. One of the things he dealt with was he looked and he said, my kids are jerks, and I'm going to give them this? I don't want to. I don't want to give them, because they'll squander it. And you know what? He was right. He couldn't figure out a way not to give it, but his son, his, his son screwed it up, blew the kingdom wide open. There was a civil war, and he came to this realization that sometimes parents come to, I don't want to give them that. I don't know what they'll do with it. I'm a little worried about this. Will it last for eternity? That's the question, because Jesus teaches us that we can be involved in things that will last for eternity. We can impact people's lives in a way that will last for eternity. We can be a part of that. That's the eternity test. He says, will it last? Because the day of trouble here is really a Hebrew phrase that has to do with when things start falling apart. And then, if you ever want to read it, you can go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he uses this list of brilliant illustrations, metaphors of things falling apart. Let me give you a few. When the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. Grinders are teeth. He's saying when the teeth start falling out, the window is a metaphor for your eyes. When your eyes start growing dim, and you can't see as well, and things start getting fuzzy. There's no LASIK surgery then. No dentists. He says, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. It, what is that? He's talking about sometimes, have you ever done it? You wake up, maybe in the middle of the night, maybe kind of early, early in the morning, and you're like, I can't sleep. I hate laying here. I should get up, but I don't want to get up. I want to, and then you hear the birds, except he's saying, this person now can't sleep, but the birds are growing faint, losing their hearing. Do you see where he's going here? When the grasshopper drags himself along, it's kind of a vivid image, isn't it? The grasshopper's get up and go is get up and gone. He just drags himself. A grasshopper, which is the epitome of something that's boing, 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 like the ever-ready. You know, if it, was, if it was 22nd century, the ever-ready bunny is running out of power. That's what he's saying here. We're all, we're, we're all going downhill. When a man's head goes bald and the skin under a woman's elbow gets all baggy and wrinkly. Okay, that's not in there. That's not in there. I didn't put this in. Jose did. All right. I figured I threw Bill under the bus. I might as well just go join him, Jose, right? All right, that's, and he says, and desire is no longer stirred. Do I have to explain this? No, good, not gonna. So the questor is saying now, maybe you're young, but your day's coming 
The grinders are going to go. The windows are going to get dim. The birds are going to get faint. The grasshopper is going to get worn out. You will go out of the world with nothing, just like that you came into the world. So the question is now, what will you put in the box? What are you going to do with your life? And I'll tell you one thing. The quester says this. It better be stronger than aging. It better be stronger than the lack of health. It better be stronger than death because those are coming. It better be something that will outlast all of those things. This is the eternity test. You can try getting richer, smarter, happier, stronger, more secure, more successful. You can walk down that road as far as you want to walk down that road. You just just know this. The smartest person, the richest person who ever lived walked down that road to the end and turned around and said, there's nothing here. It's not worth it. It's a dead end. So over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word meaningless rings out. Life is meaningless. It's unfair. It's worthless. It's hard. It's painful. It just goes on and on. He just keeps talking about it. And then finally, towards the beginning, he says something. And towards the end, he says something. Towards the beginning, he says this. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. Why do we think about these things? We're the only animal that does. Why do we think about these things? Why do we think about meaning and purpose in our life? C.S. Lewis has a brilliant way of talking about this. I'm not always sure I can do it justice. C.S. Lewis talks about this and he says this. He says, what makes us think that the very concept of meaning, he says that that concept of meaning points that there's a meaning. And he gives this illustration. If we were in a universe that was totally dark and no one had eyes, the concept of light would be meaningless because we would have no sense, no, we couldn't even imagine it. He says, we're in this world and now we sense that there should be meaning. And the reason is because there is meaning in this world. And he writes, I mean, he does a beautiful job too when he talks about how he came to Jesus as an atheist and how he became a Christian and how that played, that that concept played so heavily on his mind and pointed him to God. So God has set eternity in our hearts. Our hearts know that. You know, we, we, we talk about this in different ways all the time. You know, the, the other a few weeks ago, showing that clip of that little boy running through the Nebraska football team for a touchdown, and everybody holds him up, and everybody's like, that's so awesome. Why? Because that's what it's supposed to be. That's what life is supposed to be like. Even the littlest, even the weakest get lifted up. Even the sick get lifted up. Even the people that no one cares about get lifted up. Everybody gets a chance. Everybody gets loved. In our hearts, we know that's how it's supposed to be. But we look around us, and we look around us, and we know it's not that way, right? It's not. But our heart tells us there's more. There's more. And we get lonely. And so what do we do? We try to shove things in. We try to, whatever it is, sex. We, we, we feel small, so we try to make ourselves look bigger in some ways, more educated, richer, more powerful, more successful. We play ourselves and, and put on like, like we're better than we really are. Why? Because our heart knows we, we're made for glory. And we've lost it. And we've lost it. And Jesus says, I brought it for you. Here it is. It's in me. It's in me. And one of the dangers of saying, talking about this, is that everybody knows the answers we're supposed to give because this is church, right? That's the way things are. 
But I know this, in our society, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of years chasing after this stuff. And even in the church, there's a lot of people who are stuck halfway, halfway between giving obedience to God because they think they're supposed to and secretly in their heart thinking, I wish I, wish I had that. That would make me happy. Sitting on the fence, kind of one foot in, one foot not in. And then wondering, why, why, am, why is this this way? Why do I have this sense that I'm worthless and I'm not doing anything? And people can end up, end up living a life of perpetual grudging respectability. Trapped between the longings they're afraid to fully pursue and obedience to God that they don't really want to give. And the quester is telling us, if you really think satisfaction is down that road, let me tell you, I've gone the whole way. It's a dead end. There's nothing there. But if you have to go, man, make sure you know what you're doing. Just know the smartest guy who ever lived, he did it. And this is what he said. Now, all has been heard. The end of the book. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He says, this is where meaning is. It's in God. This is where meaning is. It's in following him. It's in loving him. This is where it resides. It's nowhere else. And so his point is, clear things out. Marie Kondo, your whole life, right? Get rid of the stuff that's blocking you and distracting you. And it's not like you got to get, you know, I'm not anti-education. I'm not anti-money. I'm not anti any of the things that he looked at. I'm not anti any of those things. I'm not anti-sex, right? I had five kids for crying out loud. I'm not anti, all right. No, that, no, anyways. Um, he says, I'm not anti those things. Those are good things, but they are not the thing. We sang, this is the one thing the one thing that I need. It's only found in Jesus. And he says, then, then you will experience that life, that life that he has for you. Scripture calls it the abundant life. It's the, it's the Zoe life, the eternal life. It is the life of abundance. And he has it for us. And so for, for us here today, for myself included, one of the things I think about today is Maybe some point during the day, I just want to stop and take stock. What is distracting me? What's in the box? What do, I, what do I think should be in the box compared to what is really in the box? And how do I make that right? I encourage you to think about that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that this was all written down about a man who did so much to try and wrote it all down for us. And now we have it and we can learn from it. Father, help us to be people who learn. Help us to be people who follow. Follow hard after you. Father, the greatest thing that could happen to us is to go to be with you and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. God, I want that more than anything. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to examine our lives in a healthy way and draw closer to you and allow your spirit to begin to point things out and then to act on it, to have the courage to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.